I just want to say how much I love James Ransire, who just led us in prayer. Uh, listen, if you live anywhere near Stafford and you are not in a life group, you should be in his life group on Friday nights. Um, he's partnering with Ross Jackson, and they're just getting started. But I just love James and Lydia. They've meant so much to our church, and just grateful. Thank you for leading us in prayer this morning, and thank you, worship team, for just doing such a great job uh, preparing us to hear from God's Word. So if you'll take your Bibles, I want to ask you to turn your, in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. And at this time, our third through fifth grade, you guys can be dismissed out to your class. So third through fifth graders, you got teachers in the back ready to help you get to your class. Listen, I'm so glad that you are here. My name's Colby. I'm one of the pastors here at Pillar Church. If this is your first time and I haven't had an opportunity to meet you, I'd love a chance to meet you after the worship service. Uh, so please uh, come find me. I'd love to greet you. Uh, we are going to continue in our series, Gospel Clarity, in the book of Romans with verses 8 through 15. If you missed last Sunday as we introduced our new series in Romans, I would encourage you to go on our website and find that sermon and catch up and uh, get rolling uh, with us. But here is verse 8 through 15. I'm going to read it for us. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. And as we quiet your heart, our hearts before it, Lord, we ask that your spirit would fill us with confidence and joy. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us in a way that would shape and change us, that would challenge us, comfort and convict us. Lord, that you would produce here in our midst, not just individual believers, but Lord, a culture, a culture of spiritual life and community and vitality that causes the gospel to be spread among the peoples of the world. Lord, we confess that individually we are weak, but through the power of your spirit, Lord, through, through fellowship and community, you strengthen us and give gifts that we wouldn't otherwise have. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. No, just turn me down just a little bit. Um, I don't, I'm planning on getting excited, and I didn't want to scare anybody in the front. I can I've, I've built four patios in my life, and uh, I can remember the first one I built because Annie and I were living in a townhouse in Stafford, and we were thinking about uh, building a patio, and I, I didn't know how to build one, and if you've never built one, you know there's steps to these sort of things. I knew if I just started throwing rock around that it was going to be 
uh, a real problem. And so uh, I began to think about it, to wrestle through it. Maybe we should build one. Maybe we shouldn't build one. And Annie and I, I, and I'm a verbal processor, so I talk about my ideas out loud. And so I'd gotten Annie all excited about it, and then nothing had happened you know, for a long time. And, uh, and she was sick of uh, sitting outside in the backyard in the grass. And uh, one day I came home from work and there was a hole in the backyard. It was a hole that was about four feet around, uh, you know, four feet in, uh, in diameter. And she had just begun digging and I said, what happened? She said, I started the patio. You know, sometimes it can be really difficult when you have a, a large project or something that you're building to really have a sense of where to start, right? And, and we all sort of need some people in our life that will start doing the digging for us. But whenever we are facing a challenge of building something significant, especially when we think about spiritual fellowship and community, as Paul is thinking about this church in Rome... Sometimes it seems overwhelming and there's a lot to think about. We just need to begin with the basics. You see, this is what's happening in verses 8 through 15. Uh, Paul demonstrates actually here for us how to take first steps in building a fruitful spiritual community. As someone who's pastored for 20 years now, I've often racked my brain and thought about how do you not only help individuals grow in their faith, which isn't a simple question to answer, but how do you help a community of people in unity together make a, make a sizable difference for the kingdom of God in a way that demonstrates the presence and power of God's spirit in their midst? And I say with Paul in 2 Corinthians, who is sufficient for these things? But Paul demonstrates here in this passage, as he begins to introduce himself to the Roman Christians, how to take first steps in building spiritual community. And I think particularly as we are in this season, many of you have not been going to this church longer than three months. As we are in a season of building something together that can impact this community, I think it's important that we think about what it takes for us to get to a place where we're genuinely fruitful. Today we will have the second of our life group fairs and an opportunity where we have been compelling you to get involved in local micro communities where you live so that you can grow and experience genuine fellowship. And in a sense, this, 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 uh, this passage is timely for us as we give a bit of the basis for what it is we're looking to do and how we can accomplish it. And so... Uh, I see a few ways here that Paul shows us how we can get started with some foundations in building a fruitful spiritual community, and I want to look at them together. The first one he shows us in verse 8 through 10 is that we prepare with prayer. We prepare with prayer. There's no doubt, if we are honest, that we would consider prayer a lost art and spiritual discipline among the people of God. If we speak honestly and openly, we all recognize with the many things that pull on our time and energy, and honestly with our underlying beliefs about how things really get accomplished. We live in a time where there is a great neglect of prayer among the people of God. That's a confession 
One of the things that is always evident about Paul's spiritual leadership and engagement in the life of the church is his vibrant prayer life. When you read it, it presents a challenge to us as modern readers who are hurried and confident in our activity, but often neglectful of prayer and lacking in confidence about God's activity. In verses 8 through 10, we understand that long before Paul has even made a visit to Rome, he prays for the people there in the church with the consistency of a spiritual mother. I mean, just look at it, verses, uh, beginning in verse 8. He says he gives thanks to God for their faith. That means Paul, who has never been to Rome, we know he's never fellowshiped with these Roman Christians as corporate bodies in their midst. He knows some of them, but Paul, he prays for them. He, he goes before God and he's already given thanksgiving for the faith that he is hearing about that he says is being heard and trumpeted throughout the world. Verse 9 and 10, he says that he mentions them always in his prayers. There's this sense of regularity and consistency that it's not a passing thought for Paul to pray for these Roman Christians. Now that may not seem terribly significant to you, but if you read the New Testament, you realize that Paul had started churches in dozens of cities. And he says here that he mentions them always in his prayers, this group of believers he's writing to. And he specifically prays and asks for the opportunity to come to them. He has a desire to be with them and he's praying that certain things would happen so that he can encourage them. Author Alva McLean in his commentary on Romans points out that what Paul describes here is like a brief master class on prayer. From it, we can examine our own prayer life. Paul's prayer here is, uh, I'm just going to name six or seven qualities of it. It's consistent, McLean says. He says it's without ceasing, which is an expression of consistency. It's personal. This is a people that he makes mention of. He can speak of them in a specific way. We know that Paul already has a personal connection with at least 26 people in the church at Rome as he names them by name at the end of this book in chapters 15 and 16. It's personal. Paul's prayer life is particular. Paul asks specifically that God would allow him to be able to go to them. He's asking specific things of God in relation to them. But we also see that Paul's prayer is submissive. Paul wants what he asks for only if it accords, he says, with God's will. That it would be according with God's will. But even in that we see that Paul, his prayer is undemanding. He is willing to have his request by whatever means God would deem fit. You know, as he's praying, he's not just praying, Lord, let this happen and I want it done in my way. He says, whatever way, Lord, you would allow me to be there, let's make that happen. And we know from Paul's life that God does fulfill it and he ends up in Rome as a prisoner. Undemanding. Lastly, it's genuine. One of the most challenging features of Paul's prayer is that in all of this, as he introduces himself and his his devoted prayer for them, he calls, listen, think about this for a second, he calls on God as his witness to the genuineness of his consistency in praying for them. It's a way of saying, my talk here about prayer is not just Christian speak, you know, I'll pray for you. 
It's not just the kind of things that, we, that people often do where it's like, I've got to say something that sounds supportive, but I don't really mean that I'm actually going to go and pray for you, or I've got to sound like I'm praying, but it doesn't mean I'm actually praying. He's, he's not doing that here. He says, I call on God as my witness how often I have remembered you and mentioned you in my prayers. It's not Christian speak for bless your heart. I like you guys. God can give witness to the sincerity of Paul's prayers. It forces us to ask an important question, doesn't it? What kind of spiritual community do you really want to have here at Pillar? In your life group? Among those that you genuinely fellowship with? in partnership with those who are on the front lines of the mission of the gospel, what kind of spiritual fellowship and community do you really want to have with them? If fellowship or community is a fruit we harvest after planting it through seeds of prayer, like Paul shows us here, what does God bear witness to in our own lives in regards to our praying? You might have missed that question. This is the question that we need to reflect on. What does God bear witness to in our own lives in regards to our praying? For what praying could we call on God as our witness? You see, Paul knows. Paul knows that if we are going to build significant spiritual fellowship, experience spiritual community, that we have to prepare through prayer. That's the first thing we see in verses 8 through 10. The second thing that we see is that Paul is insistent that we pursue being present. He says that we must pursue being present. This is what he demonstrates in verses 11 through 13. We look at it here. He says, for I long to see you. His prayers are that he, must, he might at last succeed in coming to them. I long to see you, to be mutually present together for encouragement, he says. Now listen, in the midst of a pandemic that has tested the bounds of our ability to be present with one another at times, hasn't it? Many Christians have wrestled with the role that physical presence plays in the fellowship of believers, and rightfully so. We've had to ask difficult questions, haven't we? Regardless of how we view the question tactically in regards to our time and place about what measures should or should not be taken, what press we might put into making sure we can be present together in our recent, even in present circumstances as they continue to unfold. Listen, don't miss the fact that we gain some insight into a baseline principle here in Paul's words that points us to the importance of spending time together in person with other believers. Some of y'all, listen, some of y'all might have missed what I said. I'm not talking about tactics of whether you should have been here or whether you ought to be here. You might be on the live stream even right now. I'm not talking about our present circumstances right now, what you should, you should necessarily do. But I'm saying in the midst of that, it, we can't miss out that Paul believes personal presence matters. 
that embodied presence together, it, it, has, it has a quality to it that being separated can't. Now, that might mean in certain circumstances like we did where you're online, we might actually have to lament and grieve that we can't be present. But we should never, never, never take the step of believing that, that presence together, inhabiting, embodying a space with one another is insignificant to fellowship. Because it's not. Paul, let me just get technical with you for a second. Think about it. While Paul is using an alternative form of communication and engaging in relationship here by writing this letter, while he's doing that, he's longing to throw off the limits of this type of communication and get present in their midst. Do you sense that? He wants to be with them. He gets, you know, if this is the way I've got to do it, I'll use whatever technology at the time, which were Roman roads and a letter. I'll use that at the time. But I long, I'm eager to be with you face to face so that the real fellowship of the Spirit can be enjoyed and experienced. It's not inconsequential to be together with other Christians in a personal way where we experience life side by side. It's very significant. And he shows that to us here. He's longing to throw off these limits. Look, he prays that at last he might succeed in coming to them. He says, I long to see you. And notice he even explains his absence as though he doesn't want it to be misinterpreted as sort of reluctance. He goes on and he says, verse 13, I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you. Because he, he recognizes that for some period of time, the Christians there have wanted him to be present. He's wanted to be with them, and it hasn't been able to, to be made to happen. But he doesn't want them to understand that as something that is unimportant to him. And so he wants to be present with them. He explains his absence in case they misunderstand it as an expression of the lack of importance of being together. Now, I can remember vividly my only stay at Knight's Inn. Any of y'all stayed in a Knight's Inn? We got a couple. We got Alex and Kate. We're it. We might, we might stay in the same one. <laughs> Somerset, Pennsylvania, which is kind of crazy given the context of this past weekend's remembrances. I stayed in Somerset, Pennsylvania at the Knights Inn just two weeks before 9-11. Now the reason it sticks out is that it is where I spent the last night of a long absence before Annie and I got married. See, we had gotten engaged in April of 2001 and I graduated from Liberty in uh, the first week of May and both of us had jobs. One in Wisconsin and me in Pennsylvania for the summer arranged and we decided we weren't going to spend the money seeing each other during that gap that we would see each other when we got married on September 1st. Now that's a lot of months when you love someone, I gotta tell you. And we could call on the phone, but you learn really quickly when you love someone and you care about them that communications technology is no substitute for being together. We all know that already, and, and, and Paul shows us that that's true right here. That there's no replacement 
for being together. When you've spent a long time away from people you love, you don't need an argument for the importance of just being present to really experience the mutual joys and gifts of your relationship. Paul longs to see those in the church at Rome because there are just some things that cannot be accomplished without being together. Now, I think I have made the issue clear. But in the, just in case... In, in the broader teaching of Scripture, we see this is true. We know this theologically as well. Of course, that shouldn't really surprise us because uh, genuine fellowship, you know, it's accomplished throughout Scripture through actual presence. Think about it. Our salvation itself was accomplished because God took on flesh and He dwelt among us in physical presence in the person of Jesus Christ. Because physical presence mattered, the God of the universe took on flesh and was able to be crucified so that we could have fellowship. We call it the incarnation, and the incarnation tells us that presence matters. The giving of God's Spirit through Jesus Christ's work on the cross, and as we come to faith, to believers in the body of Christ, tells us that God's presence in our life matters as much as His instruction. God's presence matters. Our glorious hope of an eternity where God dwells in the midst of his people tells us that presence matters. There is yet a day where we look forward to when we will experience the manifest presence of God in eternity because we know that presence matters. Our eternity is described as a beautiful city teeming with life and culture where God is in our midst. And you might say, isn't God in our midst now? He said, sure. He's given us the first fruits of His Spirit as a deposit, but that deposit points us forward to a time where we know together, risen with Christ, we will experience the manifest presence of God in a more significant way. And He longs for that day. And so do we. So don't miss it, there's something important, special, and significant throughout Scripture for fellowship and communion that is only accomplished when we are present together. Paul does not get specific. I want you to see one way he points to, but he doesn't get specific about how this works. But Paul does not get specific about what the gifts are here in this passage, but he says that when he is present there with them, there will be an opportunity that is not yet available by letter for gifts to be given and gifts to be received. Now, he's not talking about physical items being passed along. He's talking about the working of God's presence and spirit among believers that strengthens them where they exchange the strength of their own testimony, their own walk with the Lord, their confidence in God with one another to fill up the weak spots in each other. And they are encouraged mutually through the way these gifts are exchanged when they're present with one another. And Paul says that, that to some degree that is significant, that can't happen when they're separated. So all of this continues to point us to this idea that when people are general, genuinely present with one another in Christian fellowship, there is an unseen exchanging of gifts. Sometimes it's seen and felt. Sometimes you walk away from a conversation with other believers where you feel your faith has been strengthened just by being there. And sometimes you impart that, and you don't realize it. 
Whether we see it or whether we don't see it, Paul tells us it happens. And it happens when we're present together with our hearts devoted to encouraging one another in Christ. This is what's going on here. He actually describes it as an exchange that results in encouragement. Verse 12, that is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. This is what happens when Christians gather together for genuine fellowship. Now that word encouragement here is important. It's a rich word with lots of imagery. It's the word sum paraclethani. Go ahead and say that. Well, some of y'all got that. That was good. That was good. Sometimes I just got to show you that I did go to school. <laughs> that word, sum paraclethani, it means to come alongside each other in our calling. To come alongside each other in our calling. So what happens when we're present with one another is that we have the opportunity to come alongside one another in our calling in Christ. That, that through that, he used, the, the English word we get here is encouragement, right? Fills us with courage to pursue our calling. You know, the English word is scratching at getting this sense of partnership that happens in genuine Christian fellowship when we're present together. We're with one another, coming alongside one another, helping each other pursue the calling that God has placed on our life. It, it, it could it maybe more simply be just said to give assistance to one another mutually. Through each other's faith. In basketball, we have an entire stat for someone who gives such assistance. It's called an assist, right? I don't know if you've ever thought about what an assist is and why it's important. But as the son of a basketball coach, I have a few times. There is a recognition that some people score their points because someone else has done all the work. That's what an assist is. That not all points are created equal. Some are created by the person who passed the ball. And this is kind of the idea of this assistance alongside. Someone else has done all the work to put them into the position to score. The sort of dishing out of advantage is what we experience together in Christian fellowship. When we're together, assists take place. Is what he's saying. So what does that mean in practice? Let me get real practical with some of y'all right now. Um, some of you all are not present in any church community enough for any gifts to be genuinely given or received. Like that might be true. If it sticks for you, you need to take this word to heart. Like if you look at your life and you go, I'm not present in, in a church community enough for there to be any of this sort of mysterious change, exchanging of gifts. It's not going back and forth because you are not there. You're not in the room when the conversations are happening. Fellowship happens. Listen, it happens by showing up. Like, I wish we could get back to the spiritual discipline of showing up. Like, that would be a significant spiritual discipline in the life of the church. And I'm not talking about being in our services on Sunday. I really, I really could care less how many people we shove into this building. I want people, life on life together, showing up with one another to fulfill their calling. That's what it matters. Some of y'all don't feel spiritually strong. Don't feel particularly connected. Don't feel encouraged. You don't show up. And that's just the honest truth. Now listen, I want to I be honest. There, you may have a lot of reasons for that. And I get it. 
For some of you, it's church hurt, you know, past experiences. You don't want to get close. Some of you have moved so many times that you're weary starting a new set of relationships. Some of y'all have been here and cycled through all those relationships so many times that you're fatigued at showing up. I, I see it all. I understand it. But it matters for us to be present together. And so God calls us to lean into one another to experience this kind of, this kind of fellowship where the exchanging of gifts takes place. Now, second, some of you are present at the church, but not really present with the church. So that's just my way of saying, if you think this is about you being at the service and not with the people, it's not about that. But some of y'all, for, for a variety of reasons, maybe you've decided your personality isn't suited for connecting with people. You've decided not to be with anyone. And so you may come in and out for long periods of time and wonder, you know, I, don't, I just don't feel like I'm growing. I'm well, you're not with the people. The gifts aren't being exchanged. We have to open our life and lean into being present to experience this kind of fellowship that he's talking about. Until you lean into community and genuine relationships, spend real time with other Christians, you will simply not thrive spiritually. And that is not only the truth, I think, from God's word, but it is an observation from 20 years of pastoring. Brothers and sisters, this is why we have a life group fair. This is why we've got tables set up all around the building here. So we want to make it as easy as possible for you to begin to take steps into this kind of spiritual community. And when the service is over today... One of the applications that you can take is to stop by one of these tables, meet the folks who are leading it, and begin to build this kind of spiritual community with other people in the body of Christ. That's one simple way, but for some of us, let's just be honest, we've got to do some heart work first. We've got to begin to look and think, what is, it, what is it that I really want to be spiritually, and am I going to start showing up for the people that God has placed around me? That's the second thing. Last thing we have here is if we want to build significant spiritual community, we have to prioritize our common purpose. We have to prioritize our common purpose. Look at, look at what he says. In verse 13, as it ends, he says, I want all of this. You know, all of this has a reason. In order that. If you have an ESV and you see that in there halfway through, you might want to just underline in order that. Paul is not doing spiritual community for spiritual community's sake. He doesn't want us to be in relationship just so we can be happy and satisfied. He's not trying to, to create what often people have described as the self-licking ice cream cone. That's not what he's going for here with fellowship. Fellowship is not the end game. The glory of God through the proclamation of the gospel among all people is the end game. It's what Paul believes we need spiritual fellowship to accomplish and that we will not accomplish without it. Without it, we will never be on mission, allowing the glory of the gospel to be shining through our life in a way that other people will hear that they can have the opportunity to be reconciled to God. He says spiritual fellowship is critical for that to be able to take place. So he says we do all of this in order that this can happen. In verse 14, he, he just says it so clearly. As he sees the gospel, I am under obligation, both the Greeks and the barbarians, both the wise and the foolish, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. 
So as we think about this, we realize Paul is not just looking for some insular sense of community. He wants their faith to be strengthened because together they have a greater purpose with one another. There is a harvest to reap. He says in Rome and beyond. We know that Paul, particularly at the end of the letter, he says he wants to come to Rome to encourage them, but he also believes that through their fellowship with one another, they can go on to Spain to reach beyond where they've already seen the gospel go. Paul has his sights set, and he wants to do it with the church at Rome, through the church at Rome. The strength Paul seeks for them and from them is for the sake of fulfilling what he describes here as a holy obligation. He considers the stewardship of knowing and understanding the gospel, of of being someone who has been saved by Christ. It's a stewardship that creates a sense of holy obligation to others who do not have it. This is how he speaks about it. It is a gospel obligation to announce to all people the good news that they can be reconciled to God because Christ has saved them through his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead. So let me make clear what Paul is talking about here when he says this gospel obligation that he has where he says he is indebted. Here is the good news Paul feels under a holy obligation to announce to all people. God has granted an undeserved gift of grace to humanity. So maybe you've never understood this. God has granted something. He's granted unmerited favor and opportunity to us that we do not deserve. Mankind has sinned. We have sinned. You have sinned. I have sinned. And we're under God's justice. That means that we deserve to be treated as traitors and rebels to the things of God. This is what Paul is going to go on to teach us. And what the Bible says so clearly. And we will face God's judgment if we neglect God's gift of peace offered through Jesus Christ. Although we're sinners, in God's kindness and mercy, He did something to save us from what we really deserve. He sent Jesus Christ to stand in the place of our punishment. And at the cross, Jesus shouldered our guilt. He shouldered your guilt, mine. And he absorbed the punishment that our sins really deserved. Through Jesus Christ and his offering alone, God now extends mercy to be received as a gift from God, not as a wage that we earn. It's a gift and he extends it to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. That means that we can only be in right relationship with God as we receive this gift through Jesus Christ of what he's accomplished through paying for our sins on the cross. And and then each person must genuinely receive that mercy by asking God for it and placing their faith in this promise through Christ. And here in Romans, faith stands in contrast to works. It means that, that we, we gain it by believing and trusting that God will keep his promise, that all of his promises are yes and amen, not by working, not by getting good enough, not by the changes that we make, The first thing that happens is with nothing to offer God, we come and we receive this promise given to us through Jesus Christ. 
The result is an entirely undeserved change in status in our life that happens as we call on the Lord. You don't see it happening, but, but when you come and you understand this message and you say to God, Lord, this is me. I'm a, I'm a sinner. I deserve the justice for the works and the sins that I've committed, but thank you for sending Jesus. I believe he stood in my place. When that happens, when you do that, the Lord fills you with his spirit. He gives you the promise of eternal life. And he changes your status from rebel and enemy of God to child welcome around the table. That's what you have received. If you have any hope for eternity, if you will not be lost because of the decisions that you have made, if you get most honest before God, God, the God of justice, has kindly offered grace through Jesus Christ. Genuine forgiveness. And a promise of life with God that is eternal. And, and Paul says, this is the gospel. This is good news that we get to proclaim not only to our own souls where we rejoice that God would be so kind to count us as his children. But he says we have a holy obligation upon receiving it. That is why Paul is eager here to offer people through his message this gift, and it's what we can offer you today. If there's never been this kind of clarity in your life that you have a relationship with God through His grace in Jesus Christ, today can be the day. He extends that offer whenever this gospel is proclaimed to Gentiles throughout the world, to Jews throughout the world, and His, his categories here mean everyone. That's what they mean. You had a basic cultural division in Rome between Greeks and barbarians, the intelligence of the Greeks and others who spoke other languages that sounded like Babel to them. And he says, both the insiders and the outsiders, this message is the message of hope for them. Both those who consider them wise, they can find no greater wisdom, and those who seem foolish, it's not too difficult to grasp. So no matter who you are and where you've been and, and how much you think that you can really receive God's grace. God's grace is unending. And this message is for you. It's a promise we receive. Now listen. This isn't a religious show we're a part of. This is your life, your eternity. And it matters. But, but I'm here to just announce to you what Paul felt burdened to announce to them, that you can have this kind of confidence. You can be confident today of this kind of steadfast relationship with Christ where you're received by God because of these promises. And if you've never responded to that personally and received it, the Lord will hear it today. You may not be able to answer all the questions that you have. You may have doubts and confusion, but God is not so concerned about those doubts as you reaching out to him in faith, believing that these promises are true and that he can sort out all the rest as you walk with him. Fellow Christian, note what Paul is saying here. If you have received that gift, that gift comes with an obligation to us as a Christian community. 
It comes as an obligation to us individually, but we bear this holy obligation with Paul for this gift and this message to be proclaimed. It comes with an obligation that we have to the world around us to make that hope and gospel clear. Above everything else they would hear out of our lives and out of our fellowship together, it's a message that transcends everything else. In fact, Paul continues to show that it transcends our cultural and personal categories of identity like we talked about last week, and that his obligation is to all people and we share in that listen the sort of grace that the gospel offers us is a kind of grace that obligates us to to proclaim it the sort of grace that the gospel offers us is a is a kind of grace that obligates us to proclaim it it must be delivered to others no matter how unable or insignificant we feel. We must strive together to figure out how to be fruitful in doing that work right here in our community so that others know the hope of Jesus Christ. And Paul says it's a holy obligation. I think Paul uses a sense of obligation because he knows we're going to have to press into it. Because it's not something that's done by accident. That bearing this kind of stewardship means that we have to give ourselves to it. If you're not comfortable with the sense of obligation, John Stott offers some help to us. He says that there are two sorts of obligations we can have, or debts. That's kind of the language that's being used here, the language of debt that we might owe. The first is a debt where we've borrowed something from someone and we owe it back to them. That's not what Paul is talking about here. That's not the way this obligation works. The second is where we have been entrusted with something so valuable from one person of importance to deliver it to another person that upon receiving it, upon receiving it, we have a stewardship to follow through. This is how Jesus describes his church. That he's gifted them with this glorious message of hope and freedom and forgiveness before God in the gospel. And upon receiving it, resting in its joy, resting in its joy means receiving the obligation. And it's easy to talk about resting in the joy of the gospel, isn't it? I can get some amens this morning. If I talk heavily about resting in the joy of God's forgiveness and His reconciliation, but when we talk about receiving the obligation of carrying it to people, our fears go up, our discomforts come out, and all of the questions that we have about about that begin to well up inside us, and before long there's not as much excitement as there is trembling. Let's not forget that this is the good news. This is good news, that the state that we were in and that people are in is separated from God. And the opportunity is amazing for them to be reconciled to Him and experience the freedom and forgiveness of being saved by Christ. It's not an obligation Paul considers to be a burden. It's a joy, but it's also holy and costly And it becomes a significant priority of their fellowship together to complete the mission that Christ has for them. And if we are going to build significant spiritual community, we will have to receive that as our common purpose and prioritize the mission of the gospel above everything else. 
And through that, God will shape and work and use us in ways that we would never imagine. But it takes coming to a place where we're willing to say, Lord, I receive this stewardship. Help me to walk in it. I need other people to come alongside to help me fulfill this calling. I need the assist of genuine fellowship. And oh Lord, as I pray, I need your power. I need your power if anything of significance is going to happen. Paul says prayer, presence together, purposeful mission. These are the things that build powerful spiritual community and these are the things we invite you to join us in pursuing here as we put the gospel above all and walk in fellowship together with the risen Jesus would you bow your heads with me as we bow our heads and prepare to go into a time of receiving the Lord's Supper Take a moment there and begin to prepare your heart. Maybe just in the sincerity of this moment, you've heard the gospel clearly for the first time or its power and your need is evident. Today, you need to just take this time to call on the Lord for mercy, to ask him to receive this gift of what Jesus has done for you and put your faith and trust in him. You can... Simply call on him, saying, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've lived my life for my own purposes and priorities, but today I want to turn to you. Thank you for sending Jesus to pay for my sin, to bring me back into fellowship with you. Forgive me for my sins. Forgive me and wash me clean. Come into my life, fill me with your Holy Spirit that I might be made new and walk in obedience to you. If you've never begun a relationship with Christ, I invite you just to pray something like that, even now where you're at. To call on the Lord for mercy. This is the good news that Paul proclaimed and that we echo of what Jesus Christ has accomplished. So maybe here today and you're a Christian and, and right now you hear this holy obligation. I just want to encourage you to, to ask the Lord, Lord, who, who would you send me to? Lord, I don't know how I'm going to do it. Lord, I'm not sure what it's going to take, but Lord, who would you send me to? Open my eyes, give me sight. Lord, I just pray for this moment that you would work in our midst, that as we prepare to gather around your table, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would strengthen us, that you would encourage us, you would change us, produce in us what you desire, in Jesus' name.